Good morning. Would you please pray with me? We want, Lord, to be your student our whole lives long. Teach us what we need to learn about you, about ourselves, and about our life together. Amen. The second scripture lesson this morning is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through chapter 4, verse 5. Listen for the word of the Lord. But as for you... Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have known sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the person of God may be proficient and equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I solemnly urge you, proclaim the message. Be persistent, whether the time is favorable or unfavorable. Convince, rebuke, and encourage with the utmost patience in teaching. For the time is coming when people will not put up with sound teaching, but having their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander away to myths. As for you, be sober in everything, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, carry out your ministry fully. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. At this time of year when schools and universities are back in session, there is a lot of excitement about and attention on what kids are learning. Teachers and administrators know how eager parents are to gain a view into their kids' world of learning. This must be why schools schedule parents' night and colleges schedule family weekends so soon after the new semester starts. We know how formative an education is to our lives, and so the educational decisions we make are important. Some of you may have read the memoir entitled Educated by Tara Westover. Tara Westover's parents were survivalists in the mountains of Idaho. They were suspicious of the government and the medical establishment, so much so that four out of their seven children didn't have birth certificates. They had no medical records because they were born at home and were never taken to see a doctor or a nurse. They had no school records because they never set foot in a classroom. According to the state of Idaho and the federal government, Tara Westover didn't exist, that is, until she turned nine years old and was issued a delayed certificate of birth, which was challenging to acquire, partly because no one could remember the exact day when she was born. Growing up, she helped her family prepare for the end of the world by stockpiling home canned peaches. Their root cellar was full of supplies, and they had plenty of gasoline buried on their property for when the end would come. 
Kara was 17 years old when she first walked into a classroom. Against her father's wishes, she went to college. As an undergraduate at Brigham Young University, she never told anyone about her complete lack of schooling, even homeschooling. At most, her education had consisted of her reading the Book of Mormon twice and her reading the New Testament once quickly and then a second time slowly, pausing to take notes, to cross-reference, and to write a few short essays on religious topics. She did these things on her own accord. No one else knew that she had spent her time this way. So you can imagine how eye-opening college was to her. From her first semester onward, she was exposed to things about which she had never heard before. The Holocaust, the Civil Rights Movement, psychology, philosophy, history, and politics. She experienced what we all experience in college, exposure to, host, to a host of views and practices that are different from the ones with which we were raised. Comparing herself to all the other students who were also Mormon, Tara Westover wrote in her journal, I'd always known that my father believed in a different God. As a child, I'd been aware that although my family attended the same church as everyone else in our town, our religion was not the same. They believed in modesty. We practiced it. They believed in God's power to heal. We left our injuries in God's hands. They believed in preparing for the second coming. We were actually prepared. What Tara Westover learned in college, especially in her history class, left her reeling. The views that she had been taught by her father and had come to college parroting were not only different from, but conflicted with much of what she learned in class. Feeling so underprepared and shocked by it all, she wrote in her journal, I don't understand why I wasn't allowed to get a decent education as a child. Her quest for an education led her to complete college and then to pursue further study at Harvard and then at Cambridge University. And at Cambridge, during her first meeting with her advisor, Professor Steinberg, he asked, what would you like to read? And she remembers mumbling something about historiography. Looking back, she writes, I had decided to study not history, but historians. I suppose my interest came from the sense of groundlessness I had felt since learning about the Holocaust and the Civil Rights Movement, since realizing that what a person knows about the past is limited and will always be limited to what they are told by others. I knew what it was to have a misconception corrected, a misconception of such magnitude that shifting it shifted the world. Now I needed to understand how the great gatekeepers of history had come to terms with their own ignorance and partiality. I thought if I could accept that what they had written was not absolute, 
but was the result of a biased process of conversation and revision, maybe I could reconcile myself with the fact that the history most people agreed upon was not the history I had been taught. Dad could be wrong. And the great historians could also be wrong. But from the ashes of their dispute, I could construct a world to live in. And knowing the ground was not ground at all, I hoped I could stand on it. End of quote. What Tara Westover articulates here about her struggle is, I think, profound. She was struggling to make sense of different, even incompatible versions of history. And she struggled with this not only because they were conflicting interpretations or versions of history that she wanted to make sense of, but because the different versions were tied to particular people some to persons she had loved and to whom she had been loyal all her life, and some to persons she was newly starting to trust, some to her dad, and some versions were tied to her professors. And the more history she read, she started to engage with yet more people, those historians who were writing from different times and places in different circumstances, with different perspectives and biases. So it was not just the histories that she wanted to understand, but also the gatekeepers of history that she wanted so much to make sense of. I imagine we all, to more rigorous or more complacent degrees, struggle to make sense of not just disparate versions of history, but also the people who are attached to them. When we find ourselves doing this, an education can be helpful, not because any of our educations offer an unbiased view of everything, but because, as the quote goes, it is the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. Education should train us to think critically with some distance about even those views and doctrines that are attached to persons to whom we have been loyal. That is the significance and the sting of an education. I remember observing and feeling this sting in my first semester of college. I was at a liberal arts college that a lot of students had grown up in the Bible Belt attended. And at a time when you could still assume that most Southerners went to church. As a new religious studies major, I took an introduction to Hebrew Bible course. It blew my mind. And I know it blew the minds of others in the class. As we learned about the sources of the Hebrew Bible and compared these sources to other writings from the ancient Near East, it soon became apparent that if we wanted to make sense of, to understand the meaning of the Bible, we wouldn't be able to base it on the historicity of every element of every story. Over the course of the semester, I saw the faith of too many of my fellow 
classmates, one by one, crumble. Because what they were learning about the Bible called into question not only what they thought they had known about the Bible, but also the trust they had placed in the people who had taught them about the Bible and about their faith. Faith is social. It is not just the creeds and doctrines that we believe in. It is, at its core, the relationships of trust and loyalty that have shaped our lives. The ideas, worldviews, and values we hold, they don't just come out of nowhere. We learn them, and we are raised up in them by people, usually people we are supposed to be able to trust and to whom we are supposed to be most loyal. So it's understandable that as we leave home, broaden our circle of trusted teachers, read the works of many different historians and writers, converse with people from all different upbringings, our childhood faith is going to be challenged. The Apostle Paul seems to know this phenomenon very well. Writing to his trusted co-worker, Timothy, he begins by saying, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that lived first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now I am sure lives in you. Timothy grew up knowing the Hebrew scriptures from his childhood and through his mother's and grandmother's influence had become a Jewish Christian before meeting Paul. Upon meeting Paul, however, this faith was surely challenged. Paul's expansion of the mission to preach Christ not only to Jews, but also to Gentiles, surely broadened Timothy's social world beyond the people Timothy had trusted and to whom he had been loyal all his life. Paul seems to know that the challenge people face when it comes to faithfulness has not only to do with trustworthy doctrine, but also trustworthy relationships. Trustworthiness is a critical issue in this letter. More than once, Paul speaks in the letter about the importance of entrusting reliable people, of knowing who it is in whom we place our trust of being proven trustworthy teachers ourselves. In the passage we heard this morning, Paul says, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Just before these verses, Paul speaks about those who are untrustworthy. They are imposters who go from bad to worse, deceiving others while being deceived. Deceived deceivers, he calls them. This was a phrase, deceived deceivers, used by Paul and others in his day. And it referred to those who are both victims of deception and also prone to deceiving others. Rather than being two different categories of people, Paul understood them as being one and the same. This makes sense. There's a cycle that people get caught up in, 
Those who are deceived can also become the foot soldiers of that deception. That is why our Christian education and formation matters so much. As a missionary, Paul's main concern was that of Christian formation. As he went about planting churches, knowing that he couldn't be with everyone at all times to instruct them, he wrote a lot of letters and expended a lot of energy teaching about Christian character. So that no matter what situation people found themselves in, no matter how confused and chaotic and corrupted their circumstances were, Christ's disciples would hold fast to the good. No matter what they had to suffer, they would remain faithful to Christ. Throughout his letters, when Paul wrote about Christian character, he inevitably wrote about suffering. Theirs, his own, and Christ's. Because he knew that trustworthy Christian character would be, in the end, what would withstand confusion and chaos sown by deceived deceivers. Character, the thing that dictates our conduct when no one is looking, is what you need when you are suffering from a world shaped by deceived deceivers, when people have no recognition of their own ignorance about what is good and what is evil, when evil seems to get rewarded and goodness is shamed. At all times, and especially at such times, Paul says, we look to the character of Christ as our exemplar. Every year at this time, we kick off our Christian formation programs. They are for young and old alike. It would be an impoverishment in our Christian formation for us to think that everything we need to learn about our faith we learn in kindergarten. Christian formation is lifelong and extends way past our days in the classroom. What I wish for you and for me is a year of much learning and much making sense of both the beliefs and the relationships that make up our faith. Amen.